Welcome back to Footnotes with Dr. Tony Caffey. I'm Adam Casalino, and with me, as always, is Pastor Tony. Tony, great being here. Good to see you. Hey, Adam. Hey, I want to ask some questions first before we get started. So All right. I want to turn the tables on you. Oh, boy. Okay, so you're a San Antonian now, right? Mm-hmm. So you need to be able to say who the big three are for the San Antonio Spurs. So oh. come on, my friend. I don't. I don't even remotely know. Oh, I had him. I know. On I know it's a basketball team as much. I'm a baseball player, and so I know my team. But we don't have a baseball team in I San know, Antonio. It's too bad. Maybe you can remedy that. Maybe you can just yes, try to get somebody to me. move here. Yeah. So uh, okay, Tim Duncan. I know that name. Okay. Hall of Famer. Yes. Tony Parker. Okay. Point guard. Great okay. player. Manu Ginobili. Left-handed, oh. Hall of Famer as well. Those are the big three. Okay, so they're not playing anymore, though? They were just No, they're, they're old. <laughs> <laughs> just legends of the team. Yeah, okay. All right, well, let me ask an easier question. The big three at the Alamo, do you know those at least? Uh, Davy Crockett. Yes. And that's all I got. Uh, William to... Travis. Okay. And then James Bowie. Okay, I've been to the Alamo, and I even had like the audio tour, so I know a little bit about it, but I remember... Got one out of three, okay. So. so the big three in basketball, the big three at the Alamo. Okay. Gotta know it. All right. So I'll we'll have a quiz study. next next time we do a podcast. Sounds good. All right. So after taking a quick break, we're back in Hebrews. We're in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 18, I believe. Um, a great passage of scripture that we went over Sunday. And for those curious, it's on the website, of course. You can listen to the full sermon. Uh, now we're discussing some of the finer points, some of the footnotes, some of the details that People might have questions and other um, things that pop up. Um, just to jump in, you started out um, talking about the psalm that was being quoted and how it's talking about Israel and their wanderings, uh, as we say, in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. And you, I think you touched on this on a previous episode we did, but I wanted to ask again, why is it that the Exodus is so critical in all of the Old Testament events and everything that happened? Why is that what always so critical, even in the prophecies and in this passage. Yeah. Uh, so four out of the five books of the Pentateuch actually focus on the Exodus, broadly speaking, from the time that the Israelites left Egypt mm-hmm. to, um, you know, the wilderness wanderings to being on the cusp of the promised land. Deuteronomy, of course, is Moses preaching that final sermon before they enter. So I think that's a big part of it. You know, the, the scriptures began with... Uh, these five books for the us too, but you know the Israelites. That was their law. That was their the Torah, and so so much of that involved this kind of narratival leaving of Egypt and wrestling with God. Some people might add to this is a little bit speculative theologically, but you know as Yahweh reveals Himself to Moses, there's that kind of interchange at the burning bush where He says, "I am who I am," and even though we have Yahweh mentioned in Genesis, as Moses is writing those Genesis accounts, um, it was maybe a little more uh, focused on Elohim or, um, you know, the the sovereign God, God Almighty, El Shaddai, those kinds of names. And so this was, in, in a sense, Yahweh's kind of definitive moment, moment. I am who I am. I am your leader. I am calling you as my people. I have put you in this this 
incubator, if you will, for 400 years as you've been enslaved. Mm -hmm. I brought you here, and now I'm taking you back to, to make this definitive signature moment for you as a people as you go into the promised land that you'll never forget. And the Israelites did forget periodically, (laughs) but as they remembered again, they would remember back. Oh yeah, who are we? Uh, We are the people that God called out of Egypt. We are the the chosen people. And there is, you know, I, I might have downplayed this a little bit. There is a lot of language in the prophets and other places where you know, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are mentioned. We mm-hmm. are the children of Abraham, Isaac, yeah. and Jacob. Not just Abraham, because Abraham had other sons. Not just Abraham and Isaac, because mm-hmm. Isaac had Esau, and there were mm-hmm. the Edomites. But we are the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the 12 yeah. tribes of Jacob. So that's significant as well. But still, still, even with that, the Exodus is uh, is definitive for the mm-hmm. people of Israel. Even, even into the first century, as the yeah. author of Hebrews is writing, he's yeah. going back and he's saying... Look at the look at the Exodus, you know. Yeah. You could even see how it that dynamic of God delivering them out of a foreign land is repeated in their history. Like even in the latter prophets, when they're returning from exile from Babylon, it's it's like this parallel. And that would have of course been foremost on Jewish minds in the first century, because now they're under Rome and they're looking for that deliverer. And we even could compare that to our lives. We were in Egypt and the Lord brought us out. And we're in a wilderness now waiting for the promised land. We have it, but we're waiting for the f- fulfillment or the inheritance. So there's all these parallels we could draw from this particular moment, which makes sense that it's brought up so often. Yep. Slaves to sin. Now we're yep. slaves to righteousness. Mm-hmm. Now we're, we're, we move from slaves to sons even as well. So. Yeah. so you have an interesting quote from Hughes in his commentary. I wanted to read it just because it's worth discussing and so people know that they want to look back, take a look at... Which Hughes? There's two Hughes. There's Philip Hughes and R. Kent Hughes. I think this is Philip Hughes, a commentary on the epistle of the Hebrews. Yep. It's yep. Philip Hughes. Hughes. So he wrote this really interesting thought. The pervasiveness of ingratitude and faithlessness is nowhere near more strikingly illustrated than in the history of the Israelites in the wilderness. You can see here how eloquent this guy is. Uh, yeah, the, good, the goodness of God who raised up a leader... From them and had brought them safely out of the misery and bondage of Egypt never failed them. Yet over and over again, they rebelled against him and behaved as though he were an enemy instead of deliverer. And which is like such a crazy, you know, um, reaction. Like God raised up Moses and God was continually helping these people. But yet they acted like he was an enemy. Like, did you lead us out of Egypt so we could die here or or to starve in the wilderness? And it's like, mm-hmm. and so my question, obviously, it might be a, a tricky one to crack, but why is it so common for them and for others to react this way to to God, to the one who offers them hope, but yet they act like he's an enemy? <laughs> yeah, good. So I'm going to psychologize and then I'm going to theologize. Okay, okay, cool. So let me psychologize first. It is, isn't it often the case that the ones that you fight with the most and that you wrestle with the most are the ones that you love the most, that you're mm. the closest to. Yeah. So I remember an incident, and this is not an excuse for the Israelites, but I'll just give a, an analogy. When my wife and I first got married, um, she she was, let's just say, very, very submissive. Whatever I said, she would just go along with, even if it was a bad idea. And I could see on her face sometimes, like, she, this is a bad idea, but she would just <laughs> go with it. Well, you know, two, three, five years into our marriage, she's, she started to push back mm. and to fight me on things. And um, initially I was like, uh, you know, what happened to the woman that I married that was so, you know, accommodating for everything that I decided? 
And she said something like, well, now I know that you love me and that, you know, this I'm not going to do anything that's going to make you leave me or, or kind of abandon me. So now I have the confidence to hmm. really tangle with you and tell you what I really think. Hmm. And when she told me that, I was encouraged and I was like, all right, well, let's fight more. You know, let's get into it a little <laughs> bit more because there, there was that trust built up. But, you know, that might be a positive example where there's a negative example with the Israelites. They were, you know, familiarity breeds contempt. They were right. so close to God. They um, God had done so much for them that in in some ways they had almost thought they were owed certain things. And they um, and, and now mixed with that, there were these moments where God would get angry and the Israelites were like, we don't want to talk to him anymore. Send Moses to do mm-hmm. our bidding. So I don't want to get carried away with this. But I think there is a psychology in the human mind that, hmm. you know, closeness, close-knitness uh, in terms of marriage, in terms of family will bring out the best and the worst in terms of your interpersonal relationships. So there's that, I think, in the Old Testament. I think also, so that's the psychologizing. The theologizing is that not that we don't do this in the New Testament era, but we have inside of us the Holy Spirit that let's tamps down our worst hmm. <laughs> vices, right, and our sure. worst uh, inclinations. And that's something absent in the Old Testament world. Now, the Holy Spirit was active, so Mm -hmm. it's not like the Holy Spirit was on planet Pluto and just showed up when Jesus came or something like that. I mean, he was active, and and he even empowered Israelites at different times, and maybe in some really unusual ways, like Samson. Why does Samson get the Holy Spirit and other people don't? Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in ways that was not uh, the same for the Old Testament Israelites. And so... Sometimes their worst inclinations came to the fore, and and so we're watching God. We're watching God interact with them, kind of like the Holy Spirit does in our heart in the New Testament era. The worst of our inclination rises up, and the Holy Spirit's bringing mm-hmm. conviction and changing that before we do something stupid. Right. Uh, it, it's like that's happening in living color with the Israelites as they're doing this with God. And there is a passage, so there's all that going on, and as part of the theologizing as well, I'll just say, you know, 1 Corinthians 10 gives us this statement about the Israelites. You know, God recorded this, and and under the sovereignty of God, he showed us what not to do as the New Testament people. There, There was a purpose behind it. You know, God interacting with the Israelites, showcasing, in many ways, their sinful patterns and their collective, you know, bringing out the worst in one another, so 1 Corinthians 10 is telling us, don't do like the Israelites. That's part of the reason this is here mm-hmm. in the scriptures. And we can be judgmental about the Israelites too. And I've, I've tried to tried to uh, you know temper that a little bit in the way that I preach because um, you know we can, as Gentiles here on the other side <laughs> of the cross, we can say, those crazy Israelites, we would have never done that yeah. in the wilderness. Yeah, we would have. <laughs> you know, we had those same inclinations. We have that same sin nature. Mm-hmm. We have that same kind of crowd mentality that, you know, in the church, and I alluded to this on Sunday, should be leveraged to bring out the best in one another, exhorting mm-hmm. one another daily. But oftentimes, and unfortunately, sometimes even in churches, that crowd mentality can bring out the worst as we murmur, 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 yeah. and bring each other down instead of yeah. prop each other up. So. There's some psychology. I'm not a psychologist. Maybe maybe the theology side of that was better than the other side. <laughs> but yeah, it makes a lot of sense. As you said, we're 
we have the potential to do the same, which is why the Hebrews writer is even bringing it up in the first place. And it was the focus of, of your message that we're meant to learn from them and to understand that while we have the Holy Spirit and we're far better off covenant-wise, there's still that potential yes. of hardening the heart. Um, it's interesting, and I, you made a point about this, but he, he doesn't quote the psalmist being from David or the psalmist. He says, mm-hmm. as the Holy Spirit says. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's tied into your message, and it also gives more evidence potentially of why Hebrews itself is anonymous because mm-hmm. in he, he a few places later on he mentions David and stuff like that. Oh, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, yeah, because he is acknowledging that it's the Spirit speaking, and then that's something you had brought up at the beginning of the series that as although we don't know the man or maybe woman who wrote it, the Holy Spirit wrote yep. it, and so even he's doing it here. So I fe- it feels like he's being intentional, hiding his identity, perhaps. Um, but that's an interesting note. No, I agree with that uh, for sure, because that's a pattern throughout the book yeah. where he will talk about the Holy Spirit or not referencing the human author. He does mention David. Yeah, I think later on. In um, chapter four. So yeah. that would be kind of one argument the other direction. But no, it is fascinating. And it's very unpauline, mm-hmm. you know, for him to say the Holy Spirit says, you yeah. know, almost as as if as he's. Harking back to what the Holy Spirit said, and he's also theologizing, like, by the way, this is Scripture, and the Holy Mm -hmm. Spirit wrote it, so pay attention, guys. Yes, absolutely. So, that's an interesting little nugget for everyone to think about. Um, And it's present tense, too, says. I I noticed that, too. Not past tense. It's not like this was written. Like, he's saying this even to us right now, which is great. Yep. Um, So, the main focus of your message, you had points about how we don't harden our hearts, um, and it's worth for us to, to study those and go over those, um, even post-listening as we study the passage. But I had a question, it's more of theological, again, um, thinking about what people might be mulling in their mind. We need to take to heart this warning, not to harden our hearts, not to be resistant to the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So from a theologic, theological standpoint, you know, your Reformed theology, we understand predestination and God's sovereignty. My question is, is there a difference, or what is the difference, between someone hardening their heart versus God hardening someone's heart? Is there a difference? Is there a subtle difference? How would we kind of conceptualize that? It's hard to tell on this side of eternity, but uh, and the the kind of prototypical example is Pharaoh in the Old yep. Testament, right? Yep. And that comes up a lot. Um, you know, he hardened his heart, God hardened his heart, he hardened his heart, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg. Um, I think as a reformed person, uh, you and I both, we have to say that God's ultimate sovereignty is the, the, the governance of all of these Mm -hmm. things. But, you know, there is human responsibility and there are places in the new Testament where God's sovereignty and human responsibility are put right next to each other without Mm -hmm. any kind of. Uh, reasoning as to how they all come together. I was actually talking to somebody at church about this on Sunday, and I, there's, I did hear a pastor say once that in the in the Eastern context, when you get to this kind of this paradox or what um, some theologians called antinomy, this idea mm-hmm. of how how we bring together God's sovereignty and human responsibility, the Eastern world doesn't struggle with that very much at all. It's hmm. it's primarily like a Western, you know, how do we rationally put this together sure. 
probably because in the Western conscience, um, historically, there's been so much emphasis upon, you know, we we're self-made people. We yeah. we direct our paths. You know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm-hmm. We we have a, more of an individualistic, more of a me against the world uh, mindset, and and also you know in terms of the pursuit of science and the, the scientific method, there is this desire to rationally understand the universe and the world, even metaphysics. Mm-hmm. But there are some metaphysical uh, realities that are are impossible for us to solve. And I think this is one of them. Right. So, you know, Charles Spurgeon would talk about parallel lines that come together in the mind of God, the idea of um, God's sovereignty, human responsibility. These are things that are true. These are things that are stated in the scripture. God understands how they intersect. We, with all of our our searching and learning and scholarship and, and research, uh, just haven't quite cracked that nut yet. <laughs> And, and I'm okay with that. I'm at peace with that. You know, I've spent a lot of time trying to crack that nut. And um, there's joy in the searching, not the solving of mm. that, that issue for me. So I don't ha- feel like this, this compulsion to, to figure it all out. But uh, yeah, so, so back to Pharaoh. God hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. New Testament Christians. You know, the hearts are hardened sovereignly by the Lord. And then we also have a responsibility to, to soften our hearts. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, and there's and we're mixing metaphors a little bit here, but there's also the, the reference to new hearts given mm-hmm. to us. Yeah. You know, whereas you, there is a reality in Reformed theology that we can't ultimately soften our own hearts yeah. or make ourselves more receptive to the gospel. That's something that the Holy Spirit has to do. So I, I'm in tune with all that. Um, and at the same time, when I have an opportunity to preach a passage like Hebrews 3 where this there is this let's call it perlocutionary force to to do this to act to to soften to um to not be like Israelites in the wilderness I'm I'm going to preach it and let the Lord do what the yeah. Lord um deems right in that in that situation in that setting in in our church yeah Absolutely, because it's clear in the text, the writer is urging them, Yes, even from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is telling you, don't harden your heart. Because what Psalm 95 yes. says, even in even as it was recited in the synagogues, they would have been told, don't harden your heart to the Lord. So that's, that's obviously something that we need to take to heart. This idea that we have a role in staying humble, staying receptive to the Lord, rather than as the text said, being deceived by sin and the temptations of the world. Mm-hmm. So irrespective of, of the sovereign side of it, which we have no control over, not nor should we, we have to take stock and, and look at ourselves and be consistent. And it's interesting what you said about like Eastern ways of thinking versus Western ways of thinking. Like yes. there's pros and cons to both. Yes. Like there's a time when I was in college, I was like, yeah, Western thinking is terrible. It's awful. <laughs> but it's like we have civilization because of it. Yeah. And as as different or as appealing as Eastern thinking might be, it often breeds very passive, very kind of fatalistic lifestyles. Like it's just up to the fates and they're not proactive enough. And even in Christians could f- fall into that kind of mindset. That's right, Adam. That's a good observation. Yes. Too, too uh, pa- uh, fatalistic, I think, is the extreme, right? Yeah. When it, when you're um, kind of resolved to just let God do whatever. Um, it's, you know, and we wrestle with, you remember the Matrix movies? There was mm. that second movie that was kind of dopey, but 
they go to the architect and the architect yeah. is like talking about like what well, doesn't matter what you do it's already kind of orchestrated in this yeah. way and and um it, it it was kind of a joke for a while because it was so philosophical it was basically unintelligible whatever yeah. he was saying there <laughs> but i i did find it fascinating in that movie because the secular world wrestles with this too yeah. like what what is faded mm-hmm. what what is determined by us if not by an architect or by some uh, you know by god and you know we wrestle through these things even in scripture the the way in which we see uh god calling his people god challenging his people god giving commands to his people you know choose this day whom you will serve you know um put your faith in christ mm-hmm. when um remember the philippian jailer yep. when um how what must i do to be saved and yeah. you know it's not like paul walked them through some elaborate process of well god is sovereign over these things <laughs> and you you know you have to just wait for him to strike lightning in your heart no yeah. he's like put your believe and be yeah. saved you know yeah. so there's that too and and i think the in the reformed tradition there's a rich heritage of understanding both God's sovereignty and relishing that. And mm. at the same time, yeah. having uh, even you look at the Puritans, they would preach for conversions. You know, mm. they would preach for people to get not all of them, but, you know, they would call people to repentance. Mm-hmm. And so I, I found my um, my place in that tradition. And, and that's how I want to preach. Yeah. And I like how you said that about this very dynamic, you've wrestled with it and there's there's joy in the searching and not in the solutions necessarily. And I think that, you know, those who might be listening who are great lovers of the scriptures and probably spent long hours studying, that's something that we all do. Once we want to take seriously a study of scripture to grow our faith in order that for us to be mature believers, we will have those times of struggle. And I think maybe it's an American thing or a Western thing. We want the answers all neatly written out. Yeah. And when it comes to things like statements of faith, that they need to be written out and very clear. But when we are wrestling with these ideas, we may never have the perfect quick answer, Yeah. but it's in that searching and that wrestling where we gain a deeper maturity in understanding scripture so that it might not be a quick answer. Like just recently, my wife had a question from a friend about this very thing about like, mm-hmm. God's pre like it's pre-election, God's determined it, but both Paul and Peter have verses that say God wants all people saved. Well, how do you reconcile that? Well, there is no perfect answer. So I sat there talking with her for a long time and she was gonna text her friend with the answer. I'm like, she's like, I don't have enough space to text this answer. <laughs> My thumbs are fast. Enough. Yeah. So it's like, and a part of that's the point. It's in the journey that along the way we gain insight that we didn't have before. And even though we don't have this perfect little thing, here's the answer. We've learned so much about God's word. And, and I think that's the point. You know, not every Christian is going to be a theologian who could, who writes texts and books, but we all can go on that journey to Absolutely. whatever extent that God leads us. And I think that there's a lot of joy in that. And this might be a little bit off topic, but just an encouragement for some of our listeners. Um, I had a conversation with a believer, a new believer, and he was frustrated because, it, you know, in our church, there's a lot of people who are... Uh, you know, highly knowledgeable about the Bible. And he was feeling frustrated. Like, I don't know what they know. And I didn't have the background that they have. I didn't grow up in the church. And I was trying to encourage him by saying, man, just enjoy the journey Mm. of learning new things. I wish I could be you again, you know, (laughs) and go back to that place where I was reading these books for the first time. And the, the knowledge level just spikes 
Whereas, you know, mm-hmm. as you, you get uh, kind of older in the Lord, it doesn't have that same spike. It's mm-hmm. more of a trajectory, maybe a slower trajectory uh, upward. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like children, you know, you you, you kind of agonize over them when they're young and you, and, you know, can't wait till they're, you know, three and they're, you know, potty trained, can't wait till they go to school, can't wait, you know, after a while, you, you can't wait is like they're out of the house and boy, I wish I could go back to yeah. that stage. And so take it from a, a father who has a 15 year old right now, like <laughs> enjoy, enjoy the stages, enjoy the, the process even. So you listed three ways we avoid hardening the heart. And um, I just wanted to focus on one of them for our discussion, exhorting one another. And I just wanted to echo the the value. You had a great story about a friend who had a small group and this guy just seemed like a knucklehead. It didn't sink in. But then one day it was because he didn't know Christ and he received Christ and it was all changed. And there's probably people listening who may not think they play a role in that. But as your message said, as the text said, we all play a critical role, uh, either to encourage believers to continue on and stay faithful and help them when they're struggling, or to be ministering to a person who doesn't even know the Lord. And you not might not even realize they, know, they don't know the Lord, but mm-hmm. your testimony and your witness day in and day out, mm-hmm. God is using. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to circle back to that, whoever's listening, and as they, they understand the text, you might not be a preacher, you not, might not be an elder of the church or a leader, but you play a critical role, as we all do, to exhort one another. Mm-hmm. And that's something we always, like every day we have an opportunity to do that, whether it's through prayer or through fellowship or through however small groups or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was one commentator as well that said that there's the possibility that this church that the Hebrews writer was writing to met every day, mm-hmm. which... I mean, in our modern day American world with church just seems crazy, yeah. <laughs> you know, exactly. how would we meet every day, Not especially in San Antonio, some of us live on different sides of town. Yeah. But uh, so that, that I think requires us in terms of obedience to that, to get creative. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know, you have an opportunity, Adam, you've got a small group, but you've also got a wife, you got mm-hmm. a baby on the way, like you have an opportunity to exhort your wife every day and vice versa, your kids. Um, you know, small group, you guys, what day do y'all meet on? Tuesdays. Tuesdays, Yeah. Yeah, So, I mean, that doesn't have to be just a Tuesday thing. Um, I find myself as a pastor texting more and more, uh, the more I pastor, like, how you Mm. doing? How's it going? You know, you mentioned this the other day, what's the latest with that? And that's just a little way that we in this world can exhort, encourage, um, keep those relationships, you know, tight and um, connected so that, you know, I've thought about this as a pastor, like there's only 52 Sundays a year, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and in our church too, like I can't realistically meet with everybody on Sunday. I can't even greet everybody on Sunday. (laughs) And so we really need um, the, the exhortation of one another to be not Pastor Tony to the church or the elders to the church, but one another, the yeah. real, the realness of that one another, yeah. you know, everybody in the church invested in one another's lives, serving one another, exhorting one another. And uh, yeah, so that's one way 
Hebrews 3.13 can really be applied within our church. I love Hebrews 3.13. I've been, mm-hmm. there's a few places in the book of Hebrews where I can't wait to preach, you know, <laughs> like, um, you know, Hebrews 4, the, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged yeah. sword. So that'll be this week. Excited about that. Yeah. But I was really excited this last week to preach Hebrews 3.13 because that has such applicational yeah. heft within the context of the body of Christ. Yeah. It's great. So any final thoughts as we wrap up this episode? Yeah, I think uh, maybe just a challenge to everybody. We, uh, you know, in terms of hardening our hearts, one of the things that uh, causes that, I think, is sin. So I did Mm -hmm. tell this story, and I've told it with you before, about this young man who was sleeping with his girlfriend, and that was, uh, you know, creating all of this drama inside of his theology about, was he really saved, and can we trust the Bible? I guess I want to say as a pastor and as um, somebody who has seen a lot of destruction in people's lives because of sin, can we as a church body just be serious as a heart attack about battling mm-hmm. sin? Mm-hmm. And it's not and it's not in order to be saved. I don't want to get into that mistake where we're like, oh, you know, this is part of part of what makes us saved is this battling of sin. No, it needs to flow from the confidence that we have in Christ, that we are saved. Um, we are saved. We are, uh, we have assurance of salvation and we're confident in that, but we are not passively just waiting for, um, eternity to come. We are soldiers on the Mm -hmm. battlefield, locked in arms and, um, fighting against, you know, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life as, First John says it, and 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 that can be, you know, back to Hebrews three thirteen. That can be a corporate goal. That can be a collective. It, it needs to be that. You know, mm-hmm. nobody has to feel like they're in isolation or or they can't you know confess their sins to one another and, and receive the help that comes mm-hmm. from that. I think some of us, you know, especially those who came out of the Catholic world, are a little leery of confession. Like I go into a booth and I tell the <laughs> priest what I did, and then I do my hail marys and I'm good. Look, that's not what I'm talking about at all with confession or accountability. I'm talking about laying your heart bare before other people uh, in love and having them uh, challenge you. And you're going to be struggling maybe with something that somebody else isn't, and vice versa. And so you're going to be able to help another person, whereas that person's going to be able to help you. And I. I really, maybe because it's because it's Texas and we are a very individualistic culture. I really want to see our church um, at large leverage the power that comes from working together to mortify the flesh and to fight sin. So just one, I know I'm preaching here and this is our (laughs) podcast. Are you allowed to preach on a podcast? I mean, I yeah, you can do whatever. I, I uh, yeah, I just long to see us take this seriously and fight battles of sin and let that be just this awesome testimony before the world. You know, um, we're not perfect as Christians here at Verse by Verse Fellowship, but we're serious as a heart attack about battling sin and mm-hmm. living lives that are pleasing to the Lord. And it's and lives are more joyful yeah. when there's victory over sin. Right. So. Do it for joy. If there's anything I learned from John Piper is that there's joy wrapped up in all of this. And if you lose the joy, then you lose the the motivation for these things. So, All right. Well, amen. Well, 
Thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, every episode is available at vbvf.org, as well as our Verse by Verse Fellowship podcast. You can find it on you know, Spotify, Apple Podcast. Um, thank you, Tony, for being here. Yeah. Thanks, Adam. And we'll see you all next week.